What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another broadcast. I'm your host, Rob Goodwin, and today we've got an extra cool, extra special episode for you today. A couple of days ago, I had the honor and privilege of interviewing Dr. Ted Naiman. Most of you out there probably know already who he is and have experience with uh, Dr. Naiman. If you don't, I can tell you that uh, you're about to be uh, introduced to uh, a, a man who is uh, very revered in the nutrition uh, industry, um, especially in the ketogenic, low-carb, paleo, primal world. And he's been a go-to resource for many. He's been in, he's been a guest on hundreds and hundreds of podcasts. He's spoke at hundreds of lectures all over the world. And he's been become quite a popular go-to in this world that kind of helps make sense of, uh, you know, all the nutrition myths and misconceptions out there. And uh, like myself, his goal is to report what truly works and what's going to work best for you to help you accomplish your best body composition through nutrition and training. The cool thing about this interview is, uh, you know, we start by talking about and breaking apart his protein to energy ratio uh, nutrition strategy, which is outlined in his book, The PE Diet, which is fantastic. But then uh, the podcast takes a pretty cool turn. And we start talking about how the keto industry at large, sort of the keto orthodoxy out there, the people that have become pigeonholed into one mode of thought, their way or the highway. There's only one right way to do things, which is not true. So we start dipping our toes into that world. And then we just start knocking these things off like dominoes. We talk about uh, how keto is about low carb and not high fat and why. We talk about uh, if protein can knock you out of ketosis and if how important ketosis is for fat loss. We talk about the hot topic of gluconeogenesis. We talk about how much protein you should be taking in. We talked about the heated insulin carbohydrate hypothesis and is it finally dead and buried? Uh, we talk about frequent eating throughout the day as opposed to fasting and intermittent fasting. We talk about the importance of protein for people over the age of 40. We talk about training to failure and all these things that uh, I have been talking about for many years. Well, he's been doing it too. So we sort of come together and uh, get to talk about these things um, and share our thoughts and our ex experiences with you. And he really does help validate some of the things that many of us have been doing or thinking or trying or, you know, maybe um, thinking about trying. So uh, it's a fantastic episode. I really encourage you to listen to it all the way through if you can, or watch it all the way through, because it really, really is something pretty damn cool. Um, if you're watching me today on YouTube, do me a quick favor and hit that subscribe button and give us a little thumbs up because that goes a long way into supporting the channel. If you're listening to this on the podcast, hey, thanks out there to my podcast army. You guys are fantastic. Um, your support has been amazing. So uh, right before we jump into the interview, I do need to thank our sponsor. And I would ask you to support our sponsor. And if you do, you're going to be glad you did. This podcast, this YouTube video is sponsored by manscaped.com. 
And Manscaped, if you don't already know, they're the world heavyweight champion in men's head to toe and below the waist grooming. They make the most incredible trimmer on the planet, the Lawnmower 4.0. They have tons of other great products uh, that go along with it. I use just practically every one now, nearly every single day. And I can tell you there's nothing better out there. And if you want to take advantage of the best trimmers and products for men's grooming on earth, simply go to manscaped.com, get what you want, and then make sure you plug in coupon code KGB20 at checkout. And you will not only get 20% off, but you will get free shipping too. So go there, do that, support the channel and get a really, really badass product in return. So got it. Good. Now let's move forward with my interview with Dr. Ted Naiman. All right, everybody, as promised, I have him right here, Dr. Ted Naiman, and I'm super, super excited to have him on board today. Easily the most anticipated guest um, I could possibly imagine having on the show because uh, when I jumped into this world many years ago and sort of developed my hybrid approach of the a hardcore training element combined with lower carb, more ketogenic style nutrition protocol, it was Dr. Ted Naiman that I kept referring back to over and over again to sort of validate what I was thinking and get his perspective. And he never failed to deliver. So having you, Dr. Ted Naiman, on the show today is a unique privilege and a pleasure. And I just want to start by thanking you so much for being here. It's, it's a real honor. Oh, no, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's good to talk to you. And honestly, I think our views line up pretty well. So it, right. it might be boring for people because we're both <laughs> saying the same crap pretty much. You know, you say that, but there's something about, and, and I think you might agree, there's something about, you know, people hear my, my ideology and they hear your ideology. But when two guys get together, even though we kind of come from two different worlds, in a way, we're both clinicians. You have a medical practice. I'm on the gym floor. I work with hundreds of online clients. So we're both applying our craft in real time in front of real human beings every single day. So with that, you know, first of all, I think a lot of people are going to be out there that know us. They're going to be like fist bumping and saying, yes, yes, I, I, I knew that. I needed to hear that. That validates what I'm thinking. It will really fire people up. And for those coming into this world, maybe from the same way I did from the more, you know, I hate to say it, but conventional orthodoxy keto approach of super high fat, butter chugging kind of keto, I think it's also going to validate to them that they don't have to go that route. And there might be a better way, especially in terms of body composition and performance. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. That sounds good. So for those, if there is anybody in my audience that doesn't know who you are, can you briefly sort of explain who you are and what your background is? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a primary care doctor and uh, I live around here in Seattle and I got out of residency about 22 years ago. And so I've just been down in the trenches doing primary care medicine um, the whole time. And I'm very geeked out on diet and exercise. And kind of my angle is trying to democratize diet and exercise so that I can get my patients on board. You know, the, I have a lot of patients who don't really know anything about how, how to get started with diet and exercise. 
And my whole goal has been trying to distill all the most important concepts down into tiny little bite-sized pieces so I can get people on board as fast as possible. So I'm kind of a minimalist and I'm uh, all about like communicating to patients in the 15 minute appointments lot that I've got how to maximize their efforts when it comes to diet and exercise and metabolic health and body composition and all this stuff, because they're all kind of related. So uh, that's what I'm all about. I've been researching diet and exercise for a couple decades. Uh, and uh, probably like you and a lot of other people, I've been on every diet religion from, you know, plant-based <laughs> to uh, uh, paleo and low carb and keto and carnivore and everything else. And so I've just been extremely interested in what the drivers are with all of these different dietary approaches and uh, trying to condense that down into something that's, you know, manageable and actionable and sustainable for like just the average person who walks in off the street to my office. And I think the fact that, you know, you, you speak with average, you know, people, patients coming into your practice, one of the things about you that is, is so excellent is your ability to make things easy and understandable. And that's why I refer people to you all the time. I think the first video I ever saw from you many years ago, it was literally you that you look like you're in your office with a whiteboard and just you and a marker in like 10 minutes talked about diet philosophy. And it was so brilliant in its simplicity and its minimalism. I was like, he gets it and he knows how to freaking explain it for everybody to understand. And that's, you know, when I became a fan. So, you know, using your simplicity and your gift that you have and making things understandable, why don't you explain for the listeners out there exactly what your book, The PE Diet is about? And let me go ahead and tell you, I think I've bought this thing five or six times already. The first oh, time sorry. I bought it, <laughs> no, I, I bought it and read it and then lost it. And then I bought it for about five or six people. And then I bought it again for myself and I locked it away in Dropbox where I wouldn't lose it again. And I think I've read it four or five times and I refer to it regularly. So I highly, highly recommend everybody out there purchase it. And there'll be links in the description and everything. It's definitely worth it. But will you explain to people exactly what your PE diet means, what it is and what it's all about? Absolutely. So, so, and thank you for saying like, like I am trying to super dumb it down for, for, you know, you and I are really geeked out on diet and exercise and, uh, but the average person has just no clue. Like they literally don't know what eating is, what it's all about, what they should be targeting. And they're just completely clueless about that. So I'm really trying to simplify it, you know, just for the average person. And in the book, what I do is I zoom way, way out and look at what eating actually is, right? And so basically animals get all their food from plants. Plants generate all the food for all animals. That's how it works. Plants make their own food, animals eat plants or animals that have eaten plants. And so when you zoom way out, you're really just eating to get a, two basic things. You're eating to get um, nutrients like protein and minerals that your body uses structurally to build all your bones and muscles and organs. And then you're eating to get some sort of carbon chain that has high energy bonds you can break apart for energy. And that could be either carbohydrates or fats. So that's really all you're eating. You're eating to get carbon chains, carbs or fats for energy, and you're eating to get nutrients for structural 
uh, and functional purposes to build all your muscles and your enzymes. And that's uh, protein and minerals, which plants are basically getting from soil. Uh, plants absorb nitrogen as a mineral from soil and a bunch of other couple dozen minerals that you need uh, to create life from soil. And then plants take carbon dioxide and sunlight and chain all the carbons together as carbs or fats. And so when you zoom way, 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 way out, you can look at your diet from a perspective of protein and minerals, these nutrients versus energy, carbon-based energy, either carbs or fats. And the most important factor when it comes down to um, ad-lib caloric intake is really just the protein percentage of the food that you're eating. You know what I'm saying? So like if you're a, a hunter gatherer and you go out and just kill an animal and eat the whole thing and find some nuts and berries and eat those, um, you're eating, you know, 30% protein by calories on average, whether your carbon energy is coming from plants or animals. But what we've done in the modern food environment is dump in a bunch of refined carbon-based energy. That's your car refined carbs and refined fats, basically sugar, flour, and oil. We've dumped so many of those into the food supply that we've diluted protein down to around 12 and percent of the standard American diet is calories from protein. So uh, what protein dilution does is forces you to overeat, to get enough protein to not be hungry. So humans, as it turns out, have this protein leverage phenomenon. We have a very high protein satiety drive where you're pretty much just gonna eat until you get enough protein. So everyone out there is eating until they get enough protein to not be hungry, um, which works. Everyone's getting enough protein. Nobody's protein deficient, you know. But the problem is if you're eating modern uh, foods, you have to massively overeat carbon fats to get enough protein to not be hungry. And that's protein dilution and that's protein leverage. And that's what the whole book is about. It turns out that protein percent of the food you're eating is the number one factor when it comes to ad-lib caloric intake. And it's a huge issue with the um, obesity epidemic. So, uh, you know, the first part of the book is what is eating, breaking it all down into this protein versus non-protein energy, carbs and fats, and then looking at protein percentage and how that's a massive driver of uh, obesity and all the downstream problems of overfatness like metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. Uh, the other part of the book um, is looking at uh, hedonic drivers of overeating, which is basically high energy density carbs and fats together. When humans um, in, uh, humans are wired to seek out high energy density foods because, you know, if you spent like 10,000 calories hunting and gathering and you got uh, 5,000 calories worth of food, some low calorie density food, you're basically going to die, right? You see, so you're, you're super rewarded when you have a food that has way high energy density in it. Um, and we're just wired to eat that. We're also uh, extremely wired to eat this combination of carbs and fats together, which is really, really rewarding in your brain. So you've got high energy density carbs and fats together as giving you this hedonic, addictive dopamine spike that drives over eating. And then you've got uh, also protein dilution from these high energy density carbon fats dumped into the food supply. And so anyway, you look at it, the refined carbs and refined fats are the problem. Um, but there's like a push and pull you're, you know, you're pushing it forward with the protein dilution, you're pulling it forward with the hedonic, uh, addictive nature of these foods. And uh, the whole point of the book is basically targeting protein 
and trying to get your protein percent higher so that you're just full with fewer calories. It's about a satiety per calorie approach. And then avoiding these high energy density carbs and fats together, which everybody overeats like donuts and pizza and stuff like that. And, and, and the book is an attempt to just super dumb this down to just the very bare bones things that you have to know. Like here's the protein percent of foods, here's the energy density of foods, here's the combinations that are bad, these are the foods that you should be targeting. And, uh, and the idea is to give people just the 20% of knowledge that's going to give them 80% of their results right out the bat, you know, right off the bat. I mean, and it's excellent. And, and you, you nailed it. And one thing that you touched on that I want to sort of reiterate is you mentioned, you know, carbs and fat being brought together. Uh, so basically what you're saying is when you take these hyper palatable foods, like these processed carbohydrates, these processed oils, you bring them into combination, that combination from a hunter gatherer perspective, from an ancestral health perspective, never really occurs in nature. It took us to put those two hyper palatable things together, which created the problem, which then diluted animal protein down into the diet and therefore caused a host of metabolic dysfunction, type two diabetes and all the issues that we're facing out there. Was it, was that pretty much sums it up? Right. Exactly. Right. The, the combination of a high energy density and high carbon, high fat together uh, rarely is found in nature. Nuts are an example of that. And nuts are very high energy density, very high in carbon fat together. And uh, most animals will overeat nuts when they're, when they have uh, unlimited access to them. And that's why you fatten pigs up by feeding them acorns. That's why squirrels get fatter in the autumn from acorns and nut availability. And a lot of this is seasonal because you're only going to get these in, in, you know, late summer, autumn, and uh, it's kind of a seasonal indicator to store extra fat for the winter time. So uh, these, these carbon fat, high energy density foods are uh, highly prized by all omnivores and they're very hard to find and they're only available, you know, extremely seasonally um, in nature. But like we basically just created them all the time because we figured out how to strip all the calories out of food and create these edible calories in the form of sugar and oil, these super high energy density, pure carbs, pure fat. Uh, we got got all the calories and none of the satiety and all the hedonic overdrive and none of the minerals or micronutrients or things like that. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's this, this combination um, drives OBC and overeating forward hedonically, but also pushes it forward from the dilution of what you actually need, which is protein and minerals. Would it be fair to speculate in your opinion that because processed carbohydrates and processed oils are so easy to manufacture in terms of the, the, you know, return on investment, whereas animal protein is more expensive. It, it doesn't yield as much profit to the manufacturer that you think maybe the powers that be have uh, nefariously pushed this agenda to where we're eating all this processed cheap crap because it yields the most profit. Uh, I mean, like, I don't believe in any sort of, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy, like every, you know, the government wants me to be fat. It's just pure economics. It's pure. Money is what I'm talking uh, about. Yeah. yeah. It's pure free market economics is driving the whole phenomenon. It's purely economic. So, uh, you know, basically if I manufacture breakfast cereal, um, making the cereal is so cheap. Uh, it's right. like we have all these subsidized grains that are dirt cheap. They're practically free. Um, the cereal has a shelf life of decades. Um, so it, it's, you have this a massively amazing 
profit uh, ratio, right? Where it's more expensive to manufacture the cereal box and is the cereal in the box. You have a shelf life for forever because the energy density is so high. The weight of the product is fairly low. So it's inexpensive to ship it all over the world. Um, so you have this, all these things coming together. Uh, proteins the most expensive to produce. Carbs and fats are a lot cheaper. You can go in the grocery store and price out every food in the grocery store uh, versus its macronutrients. And protein is the most expensive one by a mile. In fact, the price of almost every food is just purely related to the protein content or the energy density. So your very low energy density foods like your uh, fresh fruits and vegetables are the most expensive. Your very high protein foods are the most expensive, uh, but high energy density carbs and fats are like free. You, you can get like a, you know, gallons of oil for nothing, sugar for nothing. Um, so it's uh, the, basically pure economics has pushed us towards the high carb, high fat, low protein, high energy density foods. Those are also the ones that people like the most, find the tastiest, overeat the most, you're going to sell the most. There, there's like 20 reasons all converging um, where you're going to profit the very most from the very worst things that people could be eating for the obesity epidemic. And that's why economics is basically driving the whole phenomenon. And that's why you can uh, you can look at a map of obesity and a map of uh, uh, median income. And it's pretty much mirror image. Right. It's like right. obesity and poverty hand in hand um, because your high energy density carbs, fats, which are cheap, your lower energy density, higher protein foods are super expensive. Uh, you know, it's like you go to McDonald's and you supersize your fries and your drink for like 10 cents, but you want an extra patty on your burger it's double the price right, you know what i'm saying right. and so it's just pure pure economics and it's not some evil nefarious uh plot or whatever it's just like basic econ and that drives the whole thing and it's uh uh you know i, I talk about that in the book and it's something you really want to be aware of because i'm going to be honest with you it's unfortunately it's a little bit more expensive to eat this sure, way sure um but it's probably worth it well, if you also got rid of uh, half the pharmaceuticals that some people are on, it would pay for the excess in protein to bring that back into their diet. So it's a give yeah. and take for sure. Um, so we've we've sort of set the table here. You know, we've talked about that protein dilution and you and I both know I'm a protein guy. We need to bring that protein percentage back up. And I'm probably even higher percentage than than what you advocate as a minimum. But when I came into the whole ancestral health primal keto realm from the whole bodybuilding world, I sort of brought with me that understanding of the importance of protein that never left me. Because if you ask a competitive bodybuilder, and you know this, you, I know you work with some, um, if you want to get lean, if you want to be your absolute best, every physique competitor, every bodybuilder, every hardcore gym rat will tell you the goal should always be whether you're 26 years old and killing it in the gym or you're a 62 year old grandmother, the goal should be to have the most and maintain the most lean mass as humanly possible while simultaneously reducing the level of body fat as low as you possibly can to a healthy level, but still very, very low. And I knew that coming into that, if you ask any physique competitor, how do you get lean and how do you keep your muscle? They're all going to say across the board, 100%, increase your protein and lift weights. I mean, that's the key. So what you're doing is, is so many fold in, in the benefit that you're giving to just normal people out there, even in the hardcore training athletes out there. But 
Can you sort of echo your belief system and why it's so important to have the primary goal to be to increase that lean mass, keep the body fat low and the role that protein plays in that? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, protein percentage is so paramount when it comes to bodybuilding. So basically uh, at, at higher levels, bodybuilders will tell you that it really just comes down to protein and calories. And honestly, if you can hit about 40% of your calories from protein, it literally it won't matter what your uh, carb fat distribution is. It won't terribly matter what your energy density is or even your food choices. And we have bodybuilders just getting completely ripped and jacked by hitting about 40% of their calories from protein with total disregard to any other dietary factors. And that actually does work. And there's this very, very dramatic relationship between protein percentage and outcomes. It's just extremely real world. So if you look at um, 10% protein by calories, that will get most omnivore mammals the very fattest. Like if you want uh, uh, to fatten a lab animal, if you have a you know, lab, uh, lab mice or rats, and you're trying to make them as obesogenic as possible. You really want protein to be down at around 10%. And then you want 45% carbs, 45% fats together, ideally high energy density. And you're looking to maximize fattening at that ratio, right? And then of course, the standard American diet's just barely north of that at like maybe 12 12 and a half percent. Then you have all these levels of protein percent. If you look at the uh, National Weight Control Registry, where everyone's lost, you know, a significant amount of body fat and kept it off for a significant length of time, uh, what they all have in common is they've all gotten protein up to at least 19 or 20 percent of their calories. Everything else is all over the board. Some people are low carb, some people are high carb, some people are low fat, high fat, some people exercise, uh, some people don't, some people have breakfast, some people don't. But uh, what's universal is they've dragged protein percent up to about 20% of their calories. If you look at um, studies where protein is raised to 30% of calories, you have a 100% prediabetes reversal rate, which is just nothing else will give you that high a reversal rate of prediabetes. So it's just insanely effective. Uh, If you look at uh, worldwide hunter-gatherer macronutrient estimates, they're way up there at this, you know, 30, 33% protein range very, very high. If you look at all of your bodybuilders, they're all eating at least 30% protein, probably 35, maybe 40. Um, if you look at all of your permalene persons, you know, your athlean exes who just walk around just completely lean, most of them are in the uh, 30% protein range, approaching maybe 40% at the extremes. And you can take lab animals, like we have studies where they took lab rats and mice and just dumped a 50% protein diet on them. Um, And you just have, you have lab rats and mice that are the leanest, most ripped and jacked mice and rats you've ever seen. They're super lean. They have the highest lean mass, the lowest fat mass, the highest insulin sensitivity. And it literally doesn't even matter what else is in their diet. This just automatically occurs. So there are these very real um, outcomes, very real world outcomes when you look at protein percent of the diet um, and what sort of phenotype you get of any kind of um, omnivore mammal, basically. And, uh, you know, nobody can really live at 50% long term. Uh, We have no studies really higher than that for any length of time. 
But basically, the higher you can drag your protein percent, the fewer calories you're going to eat. And it's fairly magical. And it's the, the biggest rock in the jar. And that was the whole point of my book is to uh, wake people up to the fact that protein percentage is the biggest single deal that you could focus on. And, and all of your bodybuilders will basically tell you the same thing. Sure. And they certainly will, because I've been around a lot of them, including myself. And the thing about myself is, and, and some might be surprised to hear this, possibly even you, but uh, I regularly keep mine at 40, sometimes even 43 to 45%, depending on the time of the year and what my goals are at the time. And I know that you often do protein to fat as a one-to-one -one ratio in grams, where sometimes I will go as far, and even with some of my clients, I'll go by percentage, where I may go, you know, 40 some percent protein, 40 some percent fat, bring in carbs around training at around 10, 10% or so. And for a lot of people, that's a sweet spot because, you know, we're bringing in just enough fat to provide working energy, uh, hormonal health, but without being so much that it might spill over. We're keeping the protein high, we're training our asses off. And that works for so many people that I work with. When I pull those levers and bring it in by percentage, it seems to work. Is what I'm doing wrong? Or is it because, and I've, I've sort of heard you touch on this, is it because a slightly leaner, heavier lifter, more athletic person can get away with those numbers because of where they're at, where somebody who might be carrying a lot more body fat will need different adjustments? What do you think about that? Um, well, no, I, I, first of all, I don't think what you're doing is wrong at all. And, and you can really look, it gets very, um, very interesting and very black and white when you look at it in a zero carbohydrate space, because then you can really focus on the protein to fat ratio and the percentages. And if, if you look at like, you know, let's look at uh, Tristan Lee, for example, mm -hmm. right? So this guy is very open about what he ate for the past two years. And he was eating this essentially zero carbohydrate, ketogenic carnivore diet of just uh, lean beef, eggs, and shrimp and sardines, right? And uh, he was basically eating two grams of protein to one gram of fat with no carbs at all. That's about 47% protein, which is insanely um, high. And uh, I'm going to say unsustainable by almost everyone, including himself. He, he basically walked around at three or 4% body fat for several years and felt like he was going to die. And it was <laughs> horrible and just awful, but you literally cannot overeat those foods. You, if you combine that with optimal resistance training, you will get your highest lean mass at your lowest fat mass. And what people also don't realize is that that metabolic health and body composition is the exact same thing. The thinner you are, the more lean mass you have and the less fat mass you have, the more insulin sensitive you are, period, full stop. There is no difference between the diet I'm going to eat to look the best naked and the diet I'm going to eat to be the healthiest metabolically because they're literally exactly the same. There's no difference there. And, and so in a zero carb space, you can really start looking at ratio of grams of protein to grams of fat or um, uh, percentages. So for me, in a, in a zero carb space, this one-to-one -one protein to fat is like uh, basically the lowest you want to go on protein percentage is 30%. So if I eat uh, just, you know, fatty ribeye and eggs and no carbs at all, that's uh, equal grams of protein and fat. That's about 30% 
calories and protein. And that's a reasonable maintenance ratio for your average person. Now, if you're trying to get thinner, you really do want protein grams to be significantly higher than fat grams. If you're eating any carbs at all, I would suggest two grams of protein to one gram of fat. You know what I mean? Um, if you're trying to be like Tristan Lee, also two grams of protein to one gram of fat. I mean, basically what you're doing is, is more or less a two grams of protein to one gram of fat, right, which I think right. is a really good starting point for a lot of people, especially if you are eating carbohydrates in a typical ketogenic diet or a targeted ketogenic diet or ideally both. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, there's a, there, I think what you're doing is completely valid. I like it a lot. And um, what people need to do is pay attention to this protein to fat ratio, which is, again, what the PE diet is all about, um, because we had so many keto fails of people just eating fat to satiety and um, not paying any attention to this at all. And I've literally watched people gain a ton of weight on you know, zero carb diets and like very strict keto and all sorts of stuff. And it really comes down to that uh, protein percentage. Uh, I think you asked me uh, like a two part question and I missed the second part. Sorry about that. But no, but you, you answered everything. I was basically looking to, you know, you mentioned a lot of people here, you say 30% protein, but I've kind of taken that as that's kind of your minimum. And I wanted to, you know, just reiterate to you that mine can be higher than that. And what I do is I keep my protein usually around that 40%, sometimes a little higher if I'm trying to get leaner. And I just sort of adjust the fat based on where I'm at through the year. If I'm trying to maintain, gain, get shredded for the summer or a competition. And that's kind of the way I do it. So I'm definitely what you would call high protein, moderate fat, low carb which everything you just said is the perfect segue because we do have so many people from the keto orthodoxy coming over to the side. I, I got into a lot of trouble many years ago because I have a brand that has the word ketogenic in it. And I was working with a lot of people that were having those stall periods and even some athletes that didn't do well on carbs and wanted to perform at a high level on a you know, low carb diet. And what I did worked extremely well. And I guess that's why I'm here. But I said on a couple of social media posts, keto is about low carb. It's not about high fat. And everybody lost their freaking minds. And so, but I've heard you talk about that as well, where, you know, it, it's not about high fat to even reach a level of ketosis, ketosis and maintain that, that, uh, and, and we'll, we'll follow through the steps here of gluconeogenesis and all these other questions that people have. But uh, I've always said keto is about low carb, not high fat. And uh, I've kind of heard you echo that as well. Would you agree to that? Yes, absolutely. You are 100% correct. So you heard it. That Dr. Ted Naiman just said I'm right. So everybody can just back off. He just said it. So go ahead, sir. Ketosis is purely about carbohydrate restriction. So Absolutely. the whole, the reason ketosis, if you're not eating enough carbohydrate to replenish liver glycogen, you will be in ketosis. Even if you're eating nothing, even if you're eating a ton of fat, even if you're eating a ton of protein, irregardless of your protein to carbohydrate ratio. I mean, I have studies of um, cyclists who are drinking whey shakes to the point that they're consuming 80% of their calories from protein for several days. They're, they're, you know, drinking 500 um, grams of protein a day as a whey shake, uh, expending a ton of energy doing cardio, uh, 
literally in a light ketosis the entire time. So it, they're massively overconsuming protein, um, hardly eating any fat, and uh, that's you'll you will still be in ketosis. There's no question about it. Now, will you be in a deeper ketosis if you just drink a whole vat of butter and eat zero protein? Yes. Well, uh, we know from the 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 you know decades of research on seizure control, medical ketogenic diets that were, you know, the oil-based keto diets that if you eat a bunch of oil and, uh, you know, especially, um, you know, MCTs or something like that, and you uh, keep protein and carbs very, very low, you will have a deeper ketosis, you'll have more ketones, but I don't think that chasing these ketones is beneficial to virtually anyone with the exception of someone who needs a high level of ketones for a uh, neurological condition, which is, you know, very, very uncommon. Um, so basically ketosis is purely about, uh, carbohydrate restriction it has nothing to do with protein, fat ratios or anything else. So you could eat nothing and be in ketosis. You could also eat tons of carbs and ju- just do a massive amount right. of right. Uh, glycogen- glycogenic, uh, exercise. Like if you're just doing tons of high intensity exercise, and burning through tons of glucose, uh, you will be in ketosis on a whole bunch of carbs. So really ketosis is about insufficient exogenous carbohydrate to replenish liver glycogen, period. That's what ketosis is. And uh, I think we really kind of took a hard left turn with the whole keto thing early on and the uh, butter chugging and the protein restriction and I, I hate to say it because I know you have the word keto in your brand, but I've personally avoided using the word keto completely. Like I don't even like to say that word because um, I feel like it's going to be dead soon because people have ruined ruined it basically with oh I agree butter yeah. chugging. So well, I'm, I'm like yeah. yeah I'm sure at some point that I'm going to have to <laughs> turn the ship a little bit on that and and right. really it should have been called cyclical ketogenic bodybuilding, but that just didn't roll off the tongue as well. So, but, uh, and and I've always said from the outset for everybody coming into this, that it is a hybrid. It is taking elements from this way of eating and elements from this way of training and using the best of each, combining them together rationally, logically, systematically to put together your best performance and, and your best body composition to be the best person you can possibly be, whether it is to look good naked, to compete on stage, to enter the CrossFit games, whatever your goal might be. So with that keto is about low carb, not high fat. I've, you know, to sort of step into what you were saying as well, output has a lot to do with that as well. So, I mean, I can take in 40% protein and take in 75 grams of carbohydrates and still be in mild ketosis. And I'm fine with that because I truly believe that it's not about being in ketosis. It's about being able to move in and out of it efficiently and have that metabolic flexibility to burn whatever fuel source is at your disposal without reaping any negative side effects from that. Do you you kind of agree with that as well? Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that as well. And and I have to backpedal a little on my protein, my absolute percentages that I throw out there, because all of that goes out the window in someone who's doing a massive amount of cardio, right? So if you're, you know, if you're training for an ultra marathon and you're burning 6,000 calories a day, the the absolute amount of protein you want to eat stays about the same. So the protein percentage goes way, way, way down. 
And uh, there's all these caveats and all these sorts of things. But to, to speak to what you just said, yeah, I think what you're what you're doing with carbohydrate is you're being strategic with it. You're targeting exactly. carbohydrates. You're doing uh, you're doing very strategic refeeds. You're doing very strategic replenishment of muscle glycogen. You're doing targeted um, use of carbohydrates as an ergogenic around workouts. And that's what I like to do with carbohydrate too. Technically, I'm on a cyclical ketogenic diet uh, with a, a carbohydrate refeed pretty much nightly, you know, it's like, it's like a 24 hour cycle, basically where I wake up in a light ketosis, uh, restrict carbohydrates during the day, um, backload them at the end of the day. And, uh, it's kind of the same technique. You're just, you're being strategic with, with carbohydrate. You're, um, you're using it more of a, oh, not a drug, but you're, you're trying to get a drug like effects from it rather than just like sucking down a a Trenta Frappuccino at Starbucks, you know, three <laughs> times a day. So like, I really resonate with what you're doing and, and I, I like it a lot. Well, and that takes us to the dreaded gluconeogenesis. And again, coming from the hard training bodybuilding set of things back in the nineties, coming into this world, uh, I sort of understood from the get-go that gluconeogenesis is not necessarily a bad thing at all. And I also understand that insulin uh, has its place and you get a lot of the people in the orthodoxy that are terrified of both. And I've just never quite understood that. And that was another refreshing thing about yourself is you talk about uh, some of the myths around gluconeogenesis, how it's demand driven, not supply driven. Can you talk about that a little bit for those people that are coming into this space thinking, oh, all this protein is going to convert to, you know, gummy bears and, you know, this all going to fall apart. Right, right, right. So, so basically, if uh, if gluconeogenesis was if gluconeogenesis was supply driven rather than demand driven, every time you had Thanksgiving dinner and ate a pound of turkey, your blood sugar would be four hundred or whatever. So, it's basically completely mythical, right? So, your your body is going to manufacture the amount of glucose that it needs, and uh, gluconeogenesis is literally keeping everyone alive on a regular basis. So, right. it's absolutely critical. Um, insulin is absolutely critical. Gluconeogenesis is absolutely critical. These are keeping us alive minute by minute, hour by hour. These are um, things that you can't just demonize. And uh, um, they're just insanely important to human functioning. And, and to be honest, all of these processes are happening all the time, just at higher or lo lower amounts. We're always generating some glucose. We're always generating some ketones. We're just suppressing it with certain things and enhancing it with other things. And so all of this is on a spectrum and we got so binary with ketosis. Like it was this switch that you flipped, which is really kind of like completely wrong and a bad way to think about it. So yeah, I, I definitely don't like the, the way that gluconeogenesis got demonized earlier on in the keto movement. And then it was like, you know, eat as much fat as you can and watch out for protein. And uh, this is, I think, part of the reason why keto went sideways so bad <laughs> and uh, is like, honestly, I'm I'm worried about it. It's, you know, we have so many keto products now and so many keto books and so much bad keto information out there that it's, uh, uh <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I didn't use the word and I'm sure you're already thinking about your next, uh, <laughs> next well, branding. I, I hate to say it. it to, to an extent, but I mean, you know, the, the thing about what I do is 
there is a name out there, but it's also me doing the work. So I can always just default back to whoever the hell I am because I'm the guy pulling the levers and, and doing the programming and setting the diets. And so I'm not too worried about it. Plus the fact that uh, I think it stirs up a lot of uh, excitement to those out there who are seeing uh, that, that are sort of pulling away from the orthodox keto and understanding that what we just talked about, it's not about high fat, it's about low carb. And if you pull the levers correctly, you can make everything fall in line and work for you very, very well. It's like the insulin thing. It's like the insulin hypothesis drives me insane. I, I think we both agree that it begins and ends with energy balance. Hormones do play a role. Uh, the types of foods that you eat, the macros that you consume plays a role. I think everything plays a role to a degree. And I think one of the problems is, is everybody jumps on one bandwagon and they, they put all their chips on that, on that one horse where there's a lot to be drawn from everything. So the in insulin hypothesis is another thing that I think needs to be refuted to a degree because something that you said, uh, I heard you mention one time about, um, generating insulin after eating protein, where you said, you know, you eat whitefish and you're going to generate, you know, an insulin response. And I said years ago to people, when I got into this realm, I said, uh, if it's about insulin, then, you know, throw away your whey protein powder. Because if you, if I drink a whey isolate shake, it's also, you know, I'm just going to stimulate an insulin response, but that's not a bad thing because insulin's also a, an anabolic hormone that in the right place at the right time and the right amounts, creates a huge benefit. So what are some of your thoughts on the insulin hypothesis? Is that thing finally dead and buried? Is there some validity to it? Is it sort of a give and take? What's your take on that? So, okay. So <clears throat> there are these two hormones in your body, right? The insulin and glucagon, and they're kind of like yin and yang. And your pancreas is a, basically a fuel pressure sensor for your bloodstream. And right. so when fuels are higher in your bloodstream, insulin goes up and, glu and suppresses glucagon. And the goal is to get the, clear the calories out of the bloodstream back into storage. You store protein in your muscles, you store fat in your adipocytes or wherever you can shove it, your liver, if all your fat cells are full, you store glycogen in your liver and your muscles and you're clearing fuels out of the bloodstream. If, you're, if you haven't eaten and the fuels in your bloodstream are low, now insulin goes down and glucagon is allowed to go up. And um, now you're dumping fuels back into the bloodstream, right? Now you're um, dumping all your glycogen from your liver into the bloodstream. You're dumping all your fat from your fat cells into the bloodstream. Uh, the, if your fuels in your bloodstream drop to zero, you die instantly. So the default is that glucagon's always on. Glucagon's the gas pedal. Insulin's the brake pedal. Glucagon's always on by default, like the push to the floor, uh, where you're just dumping out every fuel into your bloodstream. But then insulin suppresses glucagon. So insulin's like a brake um, that does the opposite. Uh, type 1 diabetics who have an autoimmune disease that destroys the beta cells of their pancreas, so they no longer have insulin, have just unopposed glucagon all the time, where they're basically just dumping every bit of stored energy they can into their bloodstream. They break down all their muscles, uh, dump the amino acids into the bloodstream so their liver can convert it into glucose. They're dumping all the glycogen from their liver into the bloodstream, all the fat streams out of their fat cells. Every fuel in their bloodstream is through the roof, triglycerides, free fatty acids, ketones, glucose, their blood sugar is 800. They go into a coma, they die. That's uncontrolled type one diabetes without insulin. When you give them insulin, now you've provided that break on glucagon again, right? So you have this constant, yin yang of insulin and glucagon going up and down, keeping all the fuels in your bloodstream perfect. It's a critical system. Nothing's good or bad. Nothing's, you know, evil or 
should be demonized here. You have to constantly have catabolism and anabolism, catabolism and anabolism. That's how our whole body works. Um, we're, uh, we eat a bunch of food every once in a while, store it all with insulin, and then slowly release it with glucagon over time so we can keep the fuels in the bloodstream perfect. And it's a, it's a beautiful system. Uh, it works great as long as you're not over fat right. um, or a type 1 diabetic. Uh, otherwise, it's working beautifully, right? And so <clears throat> I think what happened with the insulin hypothesis, here's what happened. Uh, people realized, hey, if I just have juice and toast for breakfast, with no protein and no fat and no fiber. And it's just a super high glycemic index carbs. Uh, two or three hours later, my blood sugar actually drops low and I get all shaky and I starving and I just like eat like 10 candy bars, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a very, very real thing. We know that pe when people eat high glycemic index foods without protein or fiber or fat, uh, you know, i.e. refined carbs, um, you're going to get this big glucose excursion. And then on the downstream of that, you actually get hypoglycemia where people just are super hungry. Now you can mitigate that with anything. You can mitigate that with fiber. You can mitigate that with fat. You can mitigate that with protein, which is the very best. So if you take someone who has juice and toast, has a very high blood sugar excursion, gets hypoglycemic a few hours later, eats a bunch of calories. If you dump a lot of protein into that meal, uh, the carbs don't matter. They actually won't get the same effect. You have a much smoother glucose excursion and you dig at the hypoglycemia on the other side. And so but what was really going on here is refined carbs giving people a huge glycemic index and then hypoglycemia later, driving increased calories. And we have studies that prove this. Like if you give someone a high glycemic index breakfast, um, that's low in protein and fiber and fat, uh, they will eat more downstream than if you give someone like eggs for breakfast or something with higher protein. And that is how the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis was born, right? We're like, oh, you eat these carbs and then your downstream hunger is higher and you're going to eat more and your, your body's internally starving. And yeah, it actually is like you... Uh, you, the fuels in your bloodstream are lower after this high glycemic index breakfast. So there is a definite nugget of truth to the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. It didn't just come out of the blue. Uh, there is a reality there. Uh, we've all felt that before, and we all kind of know instinctively that that's true. And that's why you are partitioning. You're, you're keeping your carbs windowed because you're more fat adapted and you're more insulated against this sort of glycemic stuff. So that's where it came from. And that's absolutely true. And that's absolutely valid. But then we tried to extrapolate all of obesity to the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis, where it's all about the carbs, which is complete and utter garbage. Right. And we have a billion studies disproving it. Uh, I can give you examples all day long. Okay. So for example, we have studies where you can fatten any laboratory animal by just pouring oil on its food. That's all you do. Uh, in fact, you can, you can literally just create an obesity model in the lab by just pouring oil on uh, or any kind of refined fat on animal foods. We have studies like this in rodents, in um, pigs, in dogs, in primates, um, you basically just pour oil on someone's on any omnivore mammal's food and it will just immediately get fatter and fatter and fatter. Now, how do you explain that with a carbohydrate insulin model? You <laughs> don't like this is completely broken out of the gate. Now you can easily explain that with the, the PE stuff of mine. It's like, okay, uh, 
protein dilution, um, caloric density, uh, maybe even making more hedonic from the caloric density or more carbon fats. I mean, there's a lot, there's a million other things that affect satiety per calorie and downstream uh, ad lib caloric consumption that has nothing to do with carbohydrate. Uh, and then we have all these studies where you literally just isocalorically substitute carbs for fats in omnivore mammals and nothing happens, right? right it's right. basically no difference at all. So there's a nugget of truth to carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. And it's, you know, don't eat juice and toast for breakfast. <laughs> uh, but you can, uh, the second you get, the minute you get protein into a nice and high range where it should have been all along, the carb thing actually just collapses. Who cares, right? Um, the minute you uh, basically look at any other factor like energy density or, you know, protein percent or uh, ratio of fiber to non-fiber carbohydrates, uh, the whole carbohydrate insulin thing uh, is just gone. And so the energy balance model, um, they've basically, they've tweaked it and refined it and improved it a little bit where it's now um, enveloped things that drive um, more downstream energy consumption from glycemic uh, changes. Like So basically the energy balance model engulfed the little bit of carbohydrate insulin model that was true and uh, now the energy balance model is is definitely the way to go. It's it's the most accurate. It's correct. Um, the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis is trying to change things a little bit, um, but it was basically wrong um, about a lot of stuff, including the fact that um, it's the fat cell driving the show, right? Like your fat cell is <clears throat> the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis said that after you eat carbs, all the fuels in your bloodstream are too low and you're internally starving. Uh, the problem with that is overfat people always have way more fuels in their bloodstream than normal weight people or lean people. Like uh, when you're overfat, your blood sugar is higher, your triglycerides are higher, your free fatty acids are higher, everything's higher, um, whether you're eating carbs or not. And so that there's this internal starvation thing has never really been demonstrated except in the setting of anybody who eats this high carb, high glycemic index, low fiber, low protein, low fat meal. And then a couple hours later has low blood sugar. That's real. The rest of it is basically not real. And that, and that's, yeah, that's where I'm at with carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. It kind of needs to back uh, back off a little bit. Good. So like carbohydrates, insulin is not the devil. It's not the be all end all horrific satanic thing that, those people make it out to be a lot of it has to do with amounts when frequency, you know, types of foods, making sure the protein stays high, all these things come into play. Correct. Well, yeah. And, and like, so everyone is worried about acute changes in mealtime, uh, uh, blood sugar, mealtime insulin. Uh, but what really matters is that basal insulin, right. You know what I'm saying? Right. right. So like, uh, um, <clears throat> You know, if I if I get super super lean, my fasting insulin level is a one, right? Um, uh, I've got patients who's fasting who are uh, metabolic syndrome, overfat, pre-diabetic. Their fasting insulin level is a 10, 20, 30, 50, 70, 90. Um, and then it's like, okay, if I eat an apple, my insulin might spike up to a 30, and my blood sugar goes from 100 to a you know, 120. Um, 
who cares? Like these cares? acute spikes yeah. have no, if you, you got to look at the area under the curve, like, like the other 23 hours a day, my, all the fields in my bloodstream are super low. So my insulin's super low and it's really about the area under the curve. So then you've got someone who's insulin resistant and they wake up with a fasting blood sugar of, uh, you know, I mean, a fasting insulin of 30 and uh, let's say they just eat you know, no carbs all day long because they're trying to keep their gl glucometer curve flat, but they eat a bunch of fat and don't lose any fat at all. The area under the curve for insulin for them is so much bigger than mine, even if I was just eating just basically sugar all day long. Like I could never get the same area under the curve that they have. And so people conflate these acute changes in blood sugar and insulin with the chronic basal underlying amount of insulin it takes just to keep your blood sugar normal. And so uh, I, I feel like we kind of also got caught up in this glycemic uh, curve type stuff, which is kind of uh, not that helpful for your average person, to be honest. Right. 100%. Fantastic. I'm glad you said that. And we are knocking down the dominoes of things that people are going to want to hear. Uh, so this is awesome. Um, another thing I want to talk about that the other big buzzword Somehow, somewhere, the low-carb keto world sort of borrowed fasting and they made it their own. And I'm not against fasting. Well, let me put it this way. I'm not against some intermittent fasting, but like everything that I'm asked, my answer usually begins with, it depends. And then we have to qualify a few things. Personally, for me, I stay fairly lean year-round. I'm trying to keep on as much lean mass as possible at 53. And for me... I do much better with a more frequent eating protocol. If I eat every three or four hours or, or four or five hours, uh, I do better. And I've sort of heard you touch on the, uh, the idea that uh, intermittent fasting can be fantastic for somebody who's trying to drop a considerable amount of body fat, but that you certainly understand that somebody who's a leaner athlete like myself year round might actually have benefit from more frequent eating and that intermittent fasting may not be required because I often tell people you don't have to fast. You know, it's an excellent way to, you know, maybe get into a caloric deficit or keep from eating foods that might sway you or, or harm you, but it's not this magic miracle thing that's just going to make fat fall off your body just in and of itself. So how do you feel about fasting and uh, compared with somebody who might want to engage in that old bodybuilding style methodology of frequent eating throughout the day, getting some protein and amino acids in every three or four hours, which is what I do. Right. All right. So a uh, couple ca caveats right at the beginning. Number one, I don't like extended fasting. I never recommend it. I never tell anyone to fast 24 hours or uh, ever beyond 24 hours. I like, I, I usually don't, I don't even recommend a 24 hour intermittent fast. I I'm typically, if someone wants to do intermittent fasting, I like a 16, eight. 16 so, eight, right. so I'm on this sort of U shaped curve with intermittent fasting where, um, I think too much is actively bad and I don't recommend it. And it's a lever. You just want to pull a little bit. And I have a bunch of problems <clears throat> with, uh, doing too much intermittent fasting or relying on it too much. Uh, first of all, protein, right? So um, everyone's eating enough protein to be alive. Like, you know, no, nobody around us is protein deficient. But if you look at protein requirements, as people get um, fatter and more insulin resistant, they actually have a higher protein target than someone who's really, really thin and insulin sensitive. And so 
Uh, people who are pre-diabetic have way more protein catabolism, way more uh, gluconeogenesis. They're basically chewing up more muscle protein and turning into glucose. And you actually have, so <clears throat> this is kind of, um, I don't know how to explain this in a really easy way, but let's say that all of obesity was created by, um, we dropped protein from 30% of calories down to 12% of calories. So we're um, uh, we're eating more hedonically because we have donuts and pizza and we're eating more because we diluted our protein. If that was the whole story, everyone would gain fat up to a certain level and then just plateau out and stay there, right? Like, you know, you're lean at 30% protein, but we dropped it down to 12%. So now everybody gains a certain amount of fat and then just plateaus out. Uh, obesity doesn't plateau out. It just keeps going and going and going. And the reason for that is because the fat, the more over fat and insulin resistant you get, the higher the protein target you have per body mass, you actually need higher and higher and higher percentages of protein. And because you're eating this diluted food, as you get fatter, it just continues to accelerate. And that's why obesity keeps climbing and hasn't flattened out. So the people who are um, overweight, over fat, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistant, pre-diabetic, they actually need an even higher protein percentage. They have more uh, muscle protein breakdown. They have more uh, protein catabolism. They're converting more of their own muscle uh, aminos into glucose. And um, it's someone who's super, super thin and really insulin sensitive that actually has way less muscle metabolism and they can preserve the protein that they have better. So you actually, you, you have people who are over fat who honestly need to be prioritizing protein even higher. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I like really high protein percentages or even something that's starting to look or feel like a protein sparing modified fast, but, but I don't like just straight fasting because you're already behind the eight ball when it comes to protein consumption to begin with. And that's just going to get worse if you're trying to just eat nothing. You know what I'm saying? Um, so the goal is to, when you lose weight, to lose as much fat as possible, but to preserve as much lean mo mass as possible. And so you really want to do that with a very high protein percent and adequate protein, uh, but just shaving down the non-protein energy calories, the carbs and the fats, right? Uh, the whole obesity epidemic was created almost completely by carbs and fats. And so all of our caloric, uh, uh, all caloric deficits should just come from carbs and fats. Caloric deficit should never come from protein. Uh, if you look at protein consumption before the obesity epidemic and after, it's like exactly the same. We just dumped in 300 calories from carbs, 300 calories from fat per day. And that's created uh, the obesity epidemic. So your all your deficits should come from carbs and fats, not from protein. Intermittent fasting is taking uh, calories from protein, which is basically away. bad. Right. Now, in terms of eating frequency, the thinner you get, the more frequently you need to eat protein, period, right? If you have tons of energy in your bloodstream, let's say I'm super fat and I have uh, tons of fuels. I have too much fuels in my bloodstream, which is what insulin resistance is, by the way. I have excess triglycerides because my fat cells don't want any fat. I have excess glucose because none of my cells want glucose. They're already got too much fat in them. And that's what insulin resistance is. Uh, insulin can't uh, clear the fuels out of your bloodstream because they're too high because none of your cells want them. And so people who are insulin resistant have tons of excess calories around, which means they can get by eating very few energy calories. They still need protein and minerals, which everyone needs on a daily basis, but they can get by with way less um, 
energy calories because they have so much energy availability. You can also, there's a maximum amount of calories you can harvest per day per pound of fat tissue. So as you get thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, you can get less and less energy from your fat cells, right? So when you're doing show prep, you're going to get to this point where you literally can barely harvest enough calories from your fat to be alive. And if you don't eat protein every few hours, you're going to have protein metabolism and you're just going to be losing lean mass and just burning it for fuel. And that's like, you know, if you're in the wintertime and you run out of firewood, you just start breaking up the furniture in your house and throwing it in the fireplace, right? You don't want to be doing that. So it completely scales with body fat and fuel availability. The thinner and more ripped and jacked you get and the less fat tissue you have, the more often you have to eat, which is why every single bodybuilder, by the time they step on stage, is eating protein every freaking three hours. That's If you don't, you're just going to be melting down lean mass that you don't want to do. So you have to dial meal frequency up and down with how many calories you have flying around. If you're super fat, don't eat any carbs and fats for all day. Who cares? I don't care. Just but target protein and minerals. And that's when you want to do like more of a, uh, you know, very high protein percentage type thing. Um, but as you get thinner and thinner and thinner, you're going to want protein more frequently. You're also going to want probably more carbohydrate, which is protein sparing. And right. just, you know, uh, make sure you have enough calories so you're not breaking down your lean mass. So it gets a little more critical. It gets more and more crucial to eat enough calories and eat frequently enough as you get thinner and thinner and thinner. And yes, absolutely meal frequency should dial up and down with body fat percentage in everybody every time. And I also, if I'm getting thinner, I'm eating a very, very frequently, like intermittent fasting should go out the window. If you are doing any, it shouldn't be more than a 16, eight. And you also, the very first meal of the day should have a ton of protein in it. And the very last meal of the day should have a ton of protein in it. So you're just losing as little as possible overnight. And um, when you're not eating. Perfect. Perfect. I'm glad you said that. Protein sparing modified fast. Really, that's just a fancy term these days for what bodybuilders back in the 80s and 90s call just a hard cut. And I've done it a hundred times throughout my career. I did it last year when I competed twice, where I'll take the protein super high, I'll dial the fat way down, I'll dial the carbs way down, and I do that for a short period of time. And that's to get down to that, you know, for me, that four to six percent contest ready kind of body fat percentage. And it's brutal. It's not fun. It's not easy. And I wouldn't recommend it for a lot of people, but a lot of clients and uh, followers like in our Facebook group, and they'll get this idea in their heads that, oh, a protein sparing modified fast. That's what competitors do to get freaking shredded. I'll do the same thing. And then they get caught into that trap of doing extended protein sparing modified fasts. And that's when you can get into some trouble. Can you explain why going too long on something that extreme is going to give diminishing returns and maybe what the maximum maximum length should be for something that extreme? So the, the bottom line is the slower you lose fat, the better, period, right. always. Like, like if you could do a show prep. Hold on, was- hold on. Okay, everybody, <laughs> you heard what he just said. Slow fat loss consistently, not overnight, not 30 pounds in a month. That's the path to getting lean and staying lean. I hope you just heard that. Okay, go ahead. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, I tell people, uh, let's, let's, let's try to get you to your goal or halfway to your goal, uh, in three years. Right. You know what I'm saying this is like a three year plan. This is an extreme marathon. The slower you go, the better, the slower you go, the higher the ra- there's a ratio of fat loss to weight loss. Um, if you just stop eating, it's 50% of each, right? If yeah, I just don't muscle. eat for, yeah, if I don't eat for a week, literally half the weight I lose, I'll lose a lot of weight and literally half of it is muscle in my metabolic right, rate goes right. down. I'm going to rebound immediately. Um, it's just going to be bad. The sustainability is terrible. Um, you literally want to, you want to intentionally lose weight as slow as possible so that everything you lose is fat and you don't lose any muscle. You actually want to gain a little muscle if you can. So you're, you, you want your calorie deficit to be fairly small, you know, three to 500 calories. You want your calorie deficit to come exclusively from carbs and fats, not from protein at all. You don't want to do anything crazy or extreme. Um, you don't want to now, by the time you've worked down to your cut, you are eating, you know, 10 egg whites and a cucumber. And it's <laughs> yeah. like this insane, it's, you know, 60% protein, yeah. absolute yeah. insanity. You have to eat every few hours. You feel yeah. like you're going to die. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, I've like the, uh, the lowest I've ever gotten is around 7%. And I have some photos of me at that level and I just look horrible. I look like a, <laughs> I don't have very much muscle. So I, I could get, I can get that lean, but I don't have a lot of muscle. So I just, I just look like a concentration camp. victim. <laughs> so it's not a good look for me. Um, but uh, I do, I've done it enough to know just exactly what it takes on protein percent and how extreme you have to get with carb and fat um, restriction. And it's painful and horrible. And uh, nobody really wants to do that. It's not sustainable at all. It's just a short-term unhealthy right. thing. Right. Um, your testosterone will nosedive. I do check testosterone levels in guys cutting uh, for, you know, the, and your testosterone level is a hundred. Like I guarantee if yep. you, if you, you know, guys who are not juicing, who get a testosterone level on the day of their show, it's, I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's prepubescent girl level for sure. <laughs> and, and that's because your body's like, there's no way we're going to reproduce in this environment. There's not enough energy exactly to, for you, let alone anybody else. So, um, Hey, ask the, my wife about how, you know, often guys who are four weeks out from the stage, you know, want to be intimate. It's, it's rare. It, it doesn't happen because you're so depleted. T levels are in the basement and you just fall apart. And I I tell everybody, listen, competitive bodybuilding is not healthy. You know, it it can, it can be for the majority of the year, but when you get down to those last, you know, maybe eight weeks, there's nothing healthy about it. It's a means to a specific goal. And when you accomplish that goal, you'd better dig yourself out of that hole quickly and systematically and intelligently, or you're going to be in a world of hurt. And that's why it's nothing that I'm going to do for the rest of my life because I want to be a productive human being in my late fifties and sixties and seventies. So I'm glad you brought up that point about tanking hormone levels and T levels, because it comes up a lot. Uh, I have guys come to me and say, I had a a panel done. My testosterone is 200. What can I do? And it's oftentimes, you know, we have to add some calories, bring, you know, titrate the fat back up, uh, you know, make sure that they're lifting heavy, getting adequate sleep and all these things. So thank you for bringing up that because I probably would have forgotten. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, and you're right. And, and and honestly, body fat is on this U-shaped curve where 
um, you know, the sweet spot for, for men, for like just off the looking good, feeling good, functioning good is I'm going to say it's in this like 12 to 15% right, range, right. you know, and then for women, it's about 10% higher than that. And uh, this is where it, uh, most people are going to have really good uh, metabolic health, a really good uh, metabolic flexibility, really good function, um, adequate hormones and everything else. Uh, but you start going higher and it goes south and you start going lower and it goes south. So there's, there's a sweet spot for hormonal balance and testosterone and these things, right? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Definitely a sweet spot. And that's where everybody wants to be. Um, and so, yeah, so, uh, like I, I, I kind of don't even like to talk about protein sparing modified fast because I want everyone to just be doing this gradual, low, uh, gradual, sustainable, pure fat loss where they're not losing any lean mass and they're not doing anything crazy. Um, basically if you're doing something right now and you ask yourself, could I do this for the rest of my life? Um, and you answered it with a zero to 10 scale, like zero is hell freaking no, I'm not even doing the rest of the day. And 10 is like, yes, I will do this till the day I die. If you're not doing stuff that's like an eight, nine or 10, right, uh, right. just rethink your whole plan. Now, of course, that goes out the window for somebody doing show prep, right? Like, we're, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody who's trying to just get to optimal on body comp and function and health and everything. You want to do this in a slow, gradual, sustainable fashion. You want to enjoy the process. You want to be confident that yes, eight, nine or 10, I can do this forever. I can, you know, lift with high intensity three times a week. I can do a uh, half an hour of hard cardio three times a week. I can crank the protein percent up to 30% on uh, my meals. Um, and I could do that forever. Yep. Eight, nine out of 10. Yep. That's where you want to be. You want to be doing like something that's sustainable and reasonable and that you can enjoy. And that will slowly let you cruise down to your ideal body composition in like three years, not three weeks or whatever. Right. And, um, that's, that's a little different than show prep. Like, you know, honestly, it all goes out the window to show prep, but, but the, the goal for somebody like yourself or, you know, someone who wants to be a bodybuilder is to live in that 12 to 15% right, range right, where right. you can easily put on muscle during the off season, but then you can easily cut down, um, uh, when you're prepping and, uh, that's where you want to be. That's kind of like the sweet spot bodybuilder or not. And the, the other thing that I say in my book is that everyone is a bodybuilder period. Like Thank if you're you. listening to this and yes. if you're like, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a bodybuilder, Bullshit. shut the hell up. Yep. You are a bodybuilder and you built the body you're in with your diet and exercise choices, period. And right. if you don't like what you've got, you need to uh, work harder at bodybuilding because you will literally build muscle with resistance training, lose muscle with sitting on the couch. You right. will uh, build lean mass and lower fat mass with a higher protein percentage and this whole PE concept, right? You're going to get uh, more cardio fitness with doing more high intensity cardio and pushing out your comfort zone. You're literally creating what you've got with all of these decisions and all of these levers that you're pulling or not pulling. And so everybody's a bodybuilder. So like you might as well, um, you know, build what you want. Right. Hey, I, I always say, there's a difference between bodybuilders and competitive bodybuilders. And 99% of my Facebook group, you know, 10,000, those 10,000 people and 
99.5% of my clientele are just bodybuilders. They're not competitive bodybuilders. And I don't expect that very often. And I'm fine with that. So people need to understand, you know, we talked about it way back at the beginning. The goal is to put on as much lean mass as possible through strength training and diet, and then to remove as much body fat as possible, get the ideal body composition. And you just referred to that. And I agree a hundred percent. I think around that 12% range for men is that sweet spot. That's what I try to maintain. And uh, so we're all bodybuilders. And uh, if we talked about, you know, getting older and, and I've kind of heard you say, and this was interesting to me, and I love this. And I want to touch on this real quick before we talk about building that body and through strength training, but I've heard you mention that as we get older, uh, I don't know if it's over 40, uh, which is usually what I recommend, but, you know, sarcopenia is a thing and we're all you know, losing muscle as we age. Do you think protein intake becomes higher as we age in terms of percentage or does it just pretty much stay the same across the board? No, you absolutely have a higher protein requirement as you get older. Right. Um, Period. So you have uh, anabolic resistance where it takes more protein to hit your leucine threshold and get protein muscle protein synthesis. Uh, you you have um, a little bit more protein losses to things like leukoneogenesis. So as people get older, they're um, they have more muscle catabolism, muscle breakdown. They have less muscle protein synthesis. They have more losses of amino acid gluconeogenesis. You actually have to dump in more protein to get the same results as you get older for sure. And so everyone should definitely be making protein even more and more and more of a priority as they get older. And in fact, like if you've got some, if you've got some 20 year old vegan bodybuilder, who's just ripped and jacked and naturally has a testosterone of like 1200, um, and they're super insulin sensitive, uh, they can literally eat 90 grams of protein a day. It doesn't matter if they're doing high intensity uh, resistance exercise and just lifting optimally, they will create such a stimulus for muscle growth that they will literally just take every amino acid they have and build skeletal muscle with it. And I, you know, I see these vegan bodybuilders who are super young, not eating a lot of protein and they're completely getting it done. You know what I'm saying? But as you get older and older and more over fat and more insulin resistant and uh, more catabolism, less uh, anabolic uh, signaling and all this stuff. You need more protein. Your protein needs go way, way up. So everyone thinks uh, all this protein bullshit is just for these young bodybuilder types. I'm like, no, it's the people who are older and fatter and sicker and more sarcopenic. They desperately need this protein message way more than like a young ripped dude with testosterone and lifting weights. He barely needs any protein. So it's the exact opposite of what people think, unfortunately, which is, uh, which really, you know, makes it confusing because, you know, everyone thinks it's, oh, that's just for young bodybuilders. No, it's the opposite. It's for everybody else. Fantastic. Let's talk about strength. Let's talk about resistance training and its importance. I know you're a big believer in it, and it's something that I, I definitely want to bring into the conversation briefly. Um, I have probably used the term failure a million times in my career. I've always believed since day one, when I started training super heavy back in the very early 90s, uh, I've always taken sets to failure. It's always been about massive progressive overload. It's about high intensity 
the more intensity to the better. I do a lot of high intensity techniques like rest pause sets and supersets and force negatives. And then I take those high intensity sets and I work them into some sort of momentary muscular failure or beyond at the very minimum on the last set. And it was also a great moment when I heard you years ago on an interview talking about taking your training to sets of failure and you do it in brief periods, high intensity to failure, which has basically been my training mantra for 30 years. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about, uh, about that and uh, how you're on board with that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm like a huge fan of maximum intensity of effort, right? I personally think that what holds the average person back from really getting somewhere is intensity of effort, right? So like you go to the gym and you see some somebody in there and they're lifting their weights and they're doing their little thing. And they've been doing the same little routine for an hour, like three times a week for 20 years. And they've literally gotten nowhere. Like they literally haven't built any muscle. They're no stronger. They're not. And I think the missing piece for the vast majority of people who are already doing some exercise is intensity of effort. Right. If you just walked in there and just did, you know, three exercises, one set each and just absolutely crushed yourself on push, pull legs, um, you'd walk out of there five minutes later and get more growth stimulus than somebody yep. doing their hour of lower intensity, you know, lighter pink weight, cardio ish kind of whatever. So it's all about like the intensity of effort and the specific adaptation to impose demand. And you have to communicate to your muscles that if you don't get stronger, we're going to die instantly by being crushed by a boulder. That is what you're trying to communicate when you do resistance training. And it's all about like mind muscle connection, maximum intensity of effort, neuromuscular drive, trying to like prove to your muscle that it's absolutely insufficient the way it is. And uh, so I'm really biased because I love all that stuff. I'm all about the intensity. I'm all about maximum discomfort. I'm all about pushing the um, extreme, like I'm going to fail and I have to be stronger side of things. And um, part of the reason I like that is because I'm such a minimalist. I'm, I'm trying to get exercise all the way down to its minimum effectiveness. It's like the absolute bare minimum of time and money and equipment that is humanly possible. Like, so what's the very, very bare minimum I can do and get the biggest return on investment. And so it's this Pareto principle where, you know, 20% of your work gets you 80% of your benefits. And for me, it's, it's down in this like super high intensity of effort zone, right? Where you, um, so I'm so minimalistic about it. I, I might just do one set um, of uh, one exercise, but I also, I like anything that amps up the intensity. So I like uh, drop sets, failure uh, extension techniques. I, I will trip it. I typically do like a triple set where I um, combine reverse pyramid drop set with um, rest pause. So I like max out on one exercise wait 30 seconds or so, um, make it easier and then max out again, wait another 30 seconds make it even easier and max out again. So I'm basically doing a triple uh, rest, pause, drop set, myo rep, whatever you want to call it, technique for every right. lift or every exercise. But, and then I'm also like 
basically not not only am I doing that kind of um, failure extension, but for each set, I do a triple failure, I call it, where I go until I absolutely fail on the concentric Mm-hmm. And then hold isometrically for as right. long as I can until I literally am forced to start doing eccentric. And then I do the eccentric as slow as I slow can. Slow as possible. Yeah. So like I'm literally doing any anything to uh, make the failure and the intensity of effort as high as I can. And I found that if you really do that, the volume you need is pretty small. Very low. Yeah. And uh, that's what I really, really like that. Now, I will admit that if you do... Um, less intensive effort and way more volume, you're going to probably get the same results when it comes to hypertrophy. I I still think that from a strength perspective, you're better off with this extreme effort, you know, like Mm -hmm. um, I I haven't seen a lot of evidence that that's not true, especially, um, especially if you're using lighter, lighter weights, you know, you have, you better go to extreme failure if you're using a lighter weight, like, or you're not going to, not percent anywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, in, in my experience working with so many people, including myself, it's one thing to be some sauce to the gills, competitive IFBB pro bodybuilder that they're, they're completely different animals than the normal folks out there. But what I've seen in my experience is the people that do push the hardest that do go to the highest intensity and the lowest amount of volume, take those sets to failure across the board, get the best results. And I've not seen anything to convince me otherwise in my 30 years of working with clients, both online and in the gym. So I'm glad you echoed that because I've got, you know, a bunch of clients out there going, geez, God, he just backed him up. Great. That means the workout tomorrow is going to be even worse and it will be, and they're all, they all get it. So I'm glad you backed that up, but you do primarily, you do a lot of body weight stuff in like 15, 20 minute rounds, right? Is that what you do? Which I think is great. And like, to be honest, like um, where I basically become worthless to to your followers is the fact that I've never touched a barbell in my life. Like I've <laughs> literally never done a bench press. I don't even know what that is. So I, I've never done a back squat. I, I I don't have a barbell. I don't go to a gym. It's all just body weight. And, and I'm not saying that weights are better. I do think weights are awesome. I'm just trying to do it in a in a way that involves the least um, overhead. Like I'm kind of this minimalistic fan and I'm just wanting to prove to patients that, hey, you don't need like a really huge amount of equipment or a a super expensive gym membership or a whole lot of time. You could just do like, you know, sets of the hardest version of push-ups you can here and pull-ups there and just uh, work it into your day. And, um, you know, this, uh, it's more minimalism and a minimum effective dose and all this stuff. But yeah, I'm pretty much just trying to recreate it all with body weight, which I, um, I know it's not going to pack on as much muscle as weights. Uh, What it is good for is relative strength. So that's strength to weight ratio. So what I'm doing is, is good for strength to weight ratio. You know what I mean? Where you're basically the strongest and the most muscle for your weight. So like, um, you know, I, I might not be able to bench press, you know, 300, 400 pounds, but I could do like, you know, maybe a one arm push up or a one arm chin or something that's more of a relative strength type thing. And it is a little bit different. Um, it's a little bit different vibe, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, but yeah, I am very into body weight and calisthenics just because it's cool to see what you can do with no equipment. And I'm not saying it's 
better necessarily. Although I, I will, I will say that um, anyone who uh, is bench pressing, who can't, who isn't really, really good at pushups first should probably just start with some, some body weight. Like, so you're very, yes. very beginner might yes. want to start with body weight just so they don't get hurt. Um, and so they build up some strength and then start bench pressing. You know what I mean? Well, my first workout with any brand new client is almost hundred percent body weight. Cause that's the only way you can assess their, you know, starting strength and know where to progress from there. And like you said, if you can't do a push up, or then we do a modified push up. And if that doesn't work, then we do a wall push up. And so we assess where you're at and then build that. Uh, we have to build a foundation from there. So yeah, I don't, if somebody were to ask me how much I bench press, you know, I have no idea because tell me the workout I'm doing. Tell me how we've divided up the sets. Tell me if there's a superset. Is there a rest pause set? Is there, you know, a pre-exhaust? Because the weights are going to be different based on the type of workout and the level of intensity that I'm using that day. So I 100% agree with you. I like to keep it very high intense, very fast pace, giving it everything I have. And I think that's going to yield the best results. So I'm glad you echoed that as well. So um, I think we covered, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I think we covered all the major questions that I know were going to pop up that everybody wanted to know what Dr. Ted Naiman, you know, what his answers would be. And I think we covered the main ones that help validate what we do. So you're a physician, you're a doctor. So to, I like to recap just to, to bring it all together at the very end. If I met you at a trade show or, or bumped into you at a Starbucks and you just had a, a minute or two and I said, Dr. Naiman, what is your prescription to get into the absolute best shape of your life, lean, fit, healthy, longevity, all these things? What would be your bullet point prescription for anyone that asked? Gotcha. Okay. So basically it's all body composition, highest lean mass at lowest fat mass. And the way you get there is number one, pushing the ratio of protein, which supports lean mass and carbs and fats, which support fat mass as high as you can, as high as you can stand. You're basically trying to prioritize lean mass over fat mass. You do that with your diet, with the PE ratio, protein to non-protein calorie ratio. And you do that with training by putting the very maximum tension in all of your muscles for the highest intensity you can stand for as long as you can stand as frequently as possible. So you're basically trying to maximize muscle tension and time under tension to give yourself the, the largest stimulus for um, anabolic muscular growth. I also think that uh, it's really, really important that people challenge their cardio system the mm -hmm. exact same way. So you literally want to do maximum cardiac output in some sort of high intensity cardio thing on a regular basis as well, because that's the only way to get the adaptations you want, a higher VO2 max and uh, better cardiac function and better capillary function and all of this stuff. So you're basically just trying to um, maximize muscular tension and time frequently, um, maximize cardiac output frequently and cardiopulmonary uh, demand basically, and then maximizing uh, protein and lean mass over energy um, in your diet with the PE ratio, protein percent. Fantastic. Well, this has been extremely valuable and uh, it's very rewarding for me to, find, to finally have you on. And I hope maybe down the road, we can get you back. Um, where can people reach you? Uh, I want everybody to buy your book because it's spectacular. Where can they reach you in social media? Where can they buy your book? How can they get in touch? 
Oh, okay. Thanks, man. Well, I, pre- <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, uh, so I'm on all the social medias. Uh, best place to find me there is uh, on Twitter at Ted Naiman. Um, and basically the book is called The PE Diet. And you can buy it from thepediet.com or tednaman.com or um, just go on Amazon or anywhere books are sold online. Um, and uh, there's uh, the the print. I don't. It's self-published, right? So we don't really have a printer, and each printed copy is print on demand. So it's super expensive, like because uh, yeah, it's all being like boutique style printed on demand. So it's the cheapest is the PDF. Um, which uh, you can just buy, uh, you know, at thepediet.com or tednaman.com, or you can also get like a Kindle version also, or a iBooks uh, version or something like that. But that probably is my best resource. Um, I'm going to save everybody money and say just I, everything in the book I just said during this podcast. So it's basically <laughs> just like protein and lifting the end, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, save your money. All right, don't don't listen to him. Buy the damn book anyway, okay? It's worth every penny of the measly 20 bucks that he charges for it. So, oh, well, thank you very much. I really really appreciate it. And uh uh unfortunately, my practice is closed to new patients, so nobody can really work with me directly. I mean, I, I am just like a regular doctor um here in Seattle for a major multi I wouldn't say you're a regular doctor. I know a lot of doctors and they are not you. So, <laughs> you're too kind to yourself. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. But I also just do like a full spectrum of just primary care. And uh, unfortunately, my practice is close to patients, so I'm not much help there. But uh, yeah, the book, I hope it is helpful to some people out there. Well, I'm sure it will be. And once again, thank you for sharing your valuable time with us. It's truly been an honor and a privilege to have you on. And I hope maybe we can do it again in the future. So uh, I'll have all your information in the show notes and uh, keep us... uh, you know, keep us in the loop of what's going on and uh, all new stuff that you got coming out. All right, cool. That sounds good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great Thank to talk you so to you. much. I, I like what you're doing over there. I mean, I've, I've uh, watched your YouTube videos. I've seen your, um, you know, like your explanation of how you set up macros and I like it a lot and I'm, I'm doing a lot of the same stuff myself. So I, wow, I, approve. I, I appreciate it. I'm very honored to hear that. So, Hey, there's somebody out there that's watching. So I appreciate it. Uh, Ted, thank you so much, my friend. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. All right, brother.